0: Hi, thank you for joining us on one of the most comprehensive podcasts devoted exclusively to family offices, Family Office World. I'm your host, Ron Diamond, Chairman and CEO of Diamond Wealth. Stay tuned for today's episode. Today's guests are Tony Pritzker and Paul Carbone. Tony is the Chairman and CEO of Pritzker Private Capital, PPC, a family investment firm based in Los Angeles and Chicago. PPC is an acquirer of middle market companies, It invests on behalf of certain Pritzker and other long-term-focused family and institutional investors. Paul Carbone is the co-founder and president of Pritzker Private Capital. Paul also chairs the PPC Management and Investment Committee and has a particular focus on advancing the development of the family capital industry and PPC's relationship with the market's premier family groups. Well, I am thrilled to be here with Tony Pritzker and Paul Carbone. There's a lot that I want to unpack in this podcast um, for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, but Tony, first, thank you for being on the podcast. I, the first question I would have is um, a lot of people, certainly from Chicago, know the Pritzker name. How did the the family get started? How did the family business get started? And then secondly, my daughter always, when she was four years old, she used to say to me, why are the put the Pitzkers. why are the Pitzkers always so nice because you always have these nice buildings that, are, uh, the, the, nice. that you're building. So why the question then is why is philanthropy or why is it so important to you personally and to your family as well?
1: First of all, thank you so much for having us on the show. This is uh it's a thrill to be able to get a chance to show off some things that I think our family has done. If you go way back, Uh, My great-grandfather came to uh, the U.S. in 1881. He came to Chicago with an uncle of his. He was only 10 years old. And he was selling newspapers and almost caught pneumonia and ended up at what's now the University of Chicago Hospital. And the nurses bought him a heavier coat many many years later my grandfather decided that he ought to that we had that we're going to put our name on the university of chicago hospital and really it wasn't the hospital at that point it was the medical school but the idea was look you know but for the grace of god there go i and i think that's the way my family has treated philanthropy all along what can we do to Build the community? What can we do to give back? Things could have been
0: different. And then, question you, you know, we're you, this is a family office podcast. And, you know, I had um, David Rubenstein on the podcast last month. And I asked the question to all of my guests, and everyone has a different answer What is a family office to you? If I say to you, What's a family office? What is a family office?
1: Well, let me start by saying, We really started this not wanting to be called a family office. And I think the family office concept has evolved quite a bit over the last 20, 30 years, 40 years. The most important thing for us was we wanted to get solid returns. And in our opinion, in our uh, uh, uh construction of what you're referring to as a family office we wouldn't let anyone in the place use the term family office and we were looking for people who were talented who could uh, help us to do what we were trying to achieve and for about 10 years jb and i did it on our own building it with Lots of help, lots of people around us. And then one day, I remember because I stay at my brother's house whenever I come here to Chicago, and I'm here all the time. And we would have a 5 a.m. At 5 a.m., we'd both end up in our boxer shorts and T-shirts in his kitchen, making coffee and chatting about things. We said, you know, we really, really need to structure around what we're doing, more structure than what we had. And that began our search, which ended up finding Paul to come and really help us build what was built today.
0: Now, Paul's done a phenomenal job, and he's been a friend, and I follow him very closely. Um, what, and then Paul, I, I have a, some specific questions for you, um, you know, in regards to how you tackled this, but there's a lot of really smart people out there. There's a lot of people that are, were would be qualified to do this. I guess my question for you, and then Paul, I've got some questions for you. Why, Paul? Why did you? Okay. It,
1: it, there were lots of different reasons why, Paul, but first you have to go to what are our core values? What were JV's and my core values that we were building on? And they are honesty, loyalty, and integrity. Now, it's easy to just say those words. By the way, if you go back by our kitchen, it happens to be painted on the walls that way. And in everybody that we're interviewing for anything, those subjects come up all the time. It's easy to just say the words, honesty, loyalty, and integrity, but you really have to live them and have to make that a core part of the way you go about them about your business.
0: Well, I, you know, when I was younger, I used to always want to work only with the most brilliant people, but I, I realized that um, intelligence is a commodity, integrity is not. And Paul, certainly you, you have both of those. So Paul, so Tony comes to you and says, okay, we've got, we're starting, I don't know if you called it a family office, but we're starting in, investing with our with our family funds. Um, you have a very successful career at Um How do you look at this as far as because it's, it's, in many ways, it's almost the antithesis of private equity, right? And I talk about this a lot. So when he came to you with this, what was your yeah. vision as far as what you wanted to create? I think it's,
2: I'm happy to talk about that. Let's talk, though, about, you know, why they don't call it family office from another perspective, which is, what people forget it's 10, 20 years ago, the perception of family offices from the outside was different than the, what it is today. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons they didn't want to use the word family office, was because the perception from the outside was maybe these are slower. These are more whimsical operations. They wanted to be seen as, I remember talking with Tony and JB about they wanted to create a world-class business. We spent a lot of time talking about what that meant, but what what attracted me to the brothers and Tony and, and JB was um, the value system first and foremost. But then you started looking at their investing and how they operated, fact-based. They were very focused on developing third-party perspectives. So it wasn't just how they thought about it. They wanted to test the market and understand from third parties. They weren't interested in buying just trophy properties. They wanted to buy great businesses and make them a lot better. Uh, They they had significant liquidity. So a lot of families have significant wealth, but often it's embedded in other assets and it's illiquid. They had the capital to go really fully execute a business and it was clear that there was a real opportunity to create competitive advantage. When you think about family capital and how family capital can compete with the right team, right strategy, right tactics, family capital has massive advantages. And so I thought you stir all that together. There was a clear opportunity to around the, their family brand
0: to build a world-class business. So what what's the biggest advantage that, in your opinion, I'm going to use the word family office, that family offices have? Over private equity firms in general, from a competitive landscape? Yeah, people talk about
2: family capital in lots of different ways. They use the word patient, they use the word all sorts of things. But what really the essence of the advantage stems from flexibility. Families aren't constrained by traditional business models. Families can execute using the right reasons, use the right approaches to build businesses, and you could build them with the right structure and for the right duration. And, they, and you, when you have that flexibility, you can attract partners in different ways. You could partner with companies in different ways. You can build companies in different ways. And so you can build better, more sustainable companies um, more effectively with family capital. So, and that's common with all families. But what, what I think Tony has done is wrapped a strategy and capability around that advantage, pointed in a very specific direction, and then stayed very, very focused and executed
0: you've you've institutionalized it in a sense, yes. All right, so let's say
1: well, I, I I'm gonna just distinguish that what we've retained is we've retained the sensitivity that we have because there are a lot of sellers of businesses because we quite often find the opportunity to buy a business that was family owned. And when the sellers care about the destination, and have an opportunity to roll a piece of what they own into it, because maybe they have a generational transition and the kids are in the business, and maybe it's being run by professional management and they wanna go in different directions. And as Paul said, they've got high net worth, but it's all tied up and they wanna get liquidity and do that. We offer several different things that are different from private equity. We offer them the not only the ability to roll a significant piece, but we offer them the ability uh, a lot of them care about who the next owner is and they care that we're going to, we still have to pay a market clearing price, but they care how you're going to treat that. And I have Numerous examples. We bought a bakery business in Texas. There was the oldest family-owned business in Texas. 175 family members were the owners. Now, you can only imagine how what a family meeting might be like with that. And it was run by professional management. There are a couple of things that I think distinguished us. Number one, I... Well, one of the things was there's a uh, restaurant that they have in town that was part of the business that was attached to the bakery. They really cared about that because that was a landmark in San Antonio, and we were happy to keep that and keep operating it, and we realized the value that it had to the family. The The senior management team, the management team that were really running it, really liked our model, and they didn't want to get into this treadmill of private equity. And what the senior management team really liked that made a big difference on this is that we were going to take it from it being just a cash flow dividend generating business into a growth business. So we took whatever profits were made and kept pouring it back into the business. And that is multiples of the size that it was today. And so, you know, how do we appeal to others and how do we appeal both to the sellers? How do we appeal to the management team? How do we appeal? And frankly, how do we appeal to our own folks inside Pritzker Private
0: Capital, they like the model that we have
1: of building businesses.
0: So, Paul, so let's say I'm a widget company, third generation, and I'm looking potentially to partner with you or potentially to partner with a private equity fund. What is the um, differentiator when, you know, you're probably not going to always be the highest bidder on everything because private equity from time to time more often than not, overpays for different assets. Um, why should, how do you convince or how do you talk to the prospective um, company about why it may be a better model to work with you than a private equity who may give them 5 or 10% more?
2: Well, let's let's go up to 10,000 feet. Wait. Historically, if you're a family and you needed a partner in capital, you had two options fundamentally. You could go sell to a strategic acquirer, and often your hated competitor that your family's competed with for decades, or you sell to traditional private equity. And remember, traditional private equity has a very successful business model, but it's constrained. You've got a 10-year partnership. They've got to buy, build, and sell. So, But those are the two options you fundamentally had. And what's happened in the evolution of the family capital and family office world is- I'll just interrupt for a second.
1: It's not usually a 10-year cycle. No, no
2: it's it's bounded by 10 years typically it's usually in the first 3 to 5 years they're in, they end up having to sell cuz they're raising the next fund so it's a limited time bounded constrained business model but it's been massively successful but that's that was your second option as a family and what's happened with the evolution of the family capital market is there's developed a third option for families so families now can partner with other families who have that flexible approach to investing they're not time-bounded. It's permanent and proprietary capital. And again, it allows the family to partner with another family and build a company the right way for the right reasons, and again, for the right duration. Now, everybody can decide the right thing to do might be to sell again, but they're not forced to sell by the business model, nor does the family business get consumed and subsumed into some big behemoth corporation. So so there are now are three options, fundamental options for families, whereas once there was two. And that third option appeals to families because you can honor culture, you can honor legacy, you can build companies differently. You can write that next chapter of the family business differently than the other two options. And we end up, we think, with family partnership and family capital, you can end up at a higher point on the mountain, with that approach.
0: So it's almost greater alignment of interest. Is that fair? I think that's very fair. You talk a lot and I speak a lot about patient capital. So the viewers know what patient capital is, but why is that so important?
1: You know, I I have to add one more thing to that, which I think is sort of interesting. If you think about it from the management team standpoint, Let's assume it's not being run by the family, or the family—you know—the kids are running it, and the kids are sixty, right? (laughs) Right. You know, I mean, but quite often uh, they have professional management. But the only thing that appeals to them about private equity is the idea that they're going to get some sort of flip payout. So we solve that problem by giving them incentive equity. And giving them a put of their carry piece, of their incentive equity piece, they can put that to us. So they, after five years, which would be a typical type of hold period, typical vesting period, they can put that to us. They can sell us their piece. Because I never mind if you like the business, you want to do it. If the CEO wants to sell you all his shares, we ought to have a conversation anyway about should we be in this business? What does he see that we don't? But but having that structure without the, the fuse of having to flip the business, which distracts the management team for an entire year. And you end up, they end up cutting off the capital investing. Most of these guys want to build something that is part of their legacy that they're proud of. But by giving them this put ability, it gives it. It didn't disadvantage us to private equity.
0: So to bring in talent like Paul and the team that Paul and you've put together, um, how do you talk about other ways that you're compensating these people? Because you're basically you're competing against Blackstone, Carlisle Apollo. You're competing against the big private equity shops. Um, what you what you talked about is certainly a competitive advantage. What other things do you do? Whether it be forgivable loans or how do you lines of credit? How do you compensate people, just in general, from a thirty thousand foot level, um, to compete against the Carlyles and Blackstones, where it, could, they want to work? Could I just jump in quickly? It's, it's not about it's not
2: about necessarily specific comp structures. If you step back and think about what appeals to family sellers, is the same thing appeals to the professional investment team? And that, what I mean is by that is we can go find better companies, win those opportunities in a sustained way build better companies and generate better long-term returns than the competitive capital base. So if you just step back in terms of the investment team, they've got their capital on the table too and their incentive structures are absolutely aligned with the capital base from the Pritzkers, but we see the benefits of the strategy working for all of us. So that's a massively important way that we've attracted talent. And then you can talk about all the mechanics of loans and other sort of but that, to me, Tony, is the yeah. is a fundamental element of attracting great and retaining great talent.
1: But I think the distinction between 20 years ago, you might have some professional come work for you, but you didn't give them the compensation structure. Right. You've you got to step up to that plate. Otherwise, they're going to go work for a Blackstone or a Carlisle. Well, when and we really constructed that. But the rest of it is, it, Paul's 100% right, that they all see that compounding that return is where you're going to get to the higher place on the
2: mountain top so let's talk, i mean you when i when we partnered initially i mean they they were clear they wanted to build a world class business but they fully tony and debbie fully understood to build a world class business you needed world class talent to attract and retain world class talent you needed market based incentives and and compensation sure. from day 1 they understood that that was a linear relationship and that to do one, you needed the other. And from the day, the beginning of the of the partnership, it was really based on all of that. So alignment of incentives, we put capital on the table alongside the brothers. We had incentives, and we built the business around that. And we attracted, I think, pound for pound, the
1: best yeah. team that I've ever worked with that that I think is true.
0: You know family offices, and I speak about this a lot, are very fragmented in general, inefficient and siloed. You're the exception, not the rule. Um, in your opinion, what, this could be for either of you, what inning are we in the family office evolution? And then secondly, um, where do you see this industry being in 10 years from now?
2: I'm going to go first, Tony.
0: Yeah,
1: I think, and maybe Paul can say it better than I would, I think my family's been investing for a you started out asking me about how we got into philanthropy. But if you really ask, there were a few things that broke them all. And it was a, my grandfather's investment early on. And then it was my father being an entrepreneur and starting Hyatt and all of that. That was super important. But And there was cash that was generated and you were having to invest that. So you could call that a family office. But I come from an entrepreneurial background. And the difference is, I would say over the last 20 years, there's been a big evolution. And I think we've been at the tip of the spear in leading how this has evolved into a professional investing organization. I said at the beginning, we didn't let anyone use the term family office here because you've got to be institutional. You've got to be. Uh, focused. Another thing is to do direct investing, you have to have the discipline to do the diligence. You can't just be making these decisions based on the hair on the back of your neck or I happen to like this or throwing money around. You have to have the discipline and which means you have to have the capacity in your organization to build the model of what you're going to do. And once you buy this business and what the numbers are going to be, you, not just, you don't just believe whatever the book is that's put together. You have to build your own model and know where you're going to go and align yourself with the management team. And then you have to go execute with the management team. I mean, they're really the basis of it. Uh, and Paul brought structure to what we we were doing it But we realized if we really want to be good at this, and we already were moving along the curve of the evolution, and Paul brought structure and capability and size, where we are now is very different than what the family office looked like 20 years ago. And I think that we've, you know, we've had to cut a lot of cloth to make this happen.
0: Yeah. Oh, what do you what inning are we thinking?
2: Yeah, I know I don't know if the baseball analogy is a good one because I think to Tony's point, family offices have been direct investing for a long time. But in the last 10 to 20 years in particular, we've seen sort of a nonlinear growth. And that's really, I think that's driven by the fact that a lot of money's been made by families. It's also driven by the fact that if you want to be a direct employer over the last, let's say 10 years in particular, you're competing in a marketplace that's massively overcapitalized, that it's a wash in capital. So if you want to compete and accomplish family objectives in terms of your returns, you've got to go have the equipment and the capabilities. So you've seen families become more sophisticated, develop process procedures, disciplines, teams to go out there and compete and win. And so I, th- I think you've seen an acceleration of the sophistication of families. You've seen an acceleration of direct deploy. You've seen an acceleration of the competitiveness of family offices, family capital versus all the other capital. And given that, I think we're we're early days because I think you're going to continue to see that development. Uh, and so I would expect that over the next 10 years, you're now we've got a rockier road over the next 10 years, potentially than we had the last 10. But I still think those elements have, have now been taken on board by many families and they're going to continue to develop that capability and sophistication.
1: Yeah, and it's not about whether or not you finance the company really well and ran that. I think those days are a little bit behind us. Yeah, I think you have to have operational capability. Now, maybe I'm just saying that because I'm an operator, but I really do believe that you can't buy these companies cheap, and you better know what you're doing when you get it. And it just you're paying a pretty penny for these businesses. And I think that is going to, that's a strength of ours. I learned that from my uncle Bob at the Barman Group. I learned operating capabilities and we made it a core part of what we do that I think distinguishes us. That's another way that we differentiate from uh, private equity. Most of them are financial engineers.
2: You know, one interesting statistic that's come out of a recent warden survey uh, that we both know about, Tony, is a lot of families have increased their direct deploy over the last 10 years. Again, winded our back times. But what ha- what's interesting from the survey is a lot of families haven't necessarily staffed up as much uh, in terms of their investment teams or operational teams, to Tony's point. So now the question becomes families have developed a taste for direct deploy. They've done it. Uh, But they haven't necessarily staffed up as much as maybe they need to to deal with today's challenges and tomorrow's challenges. So the question is going to become, you know, we may. It's I think we have a fundamental secular trend. We may go through a period here of a little bit of rocky road as families figured out they really do need to staff up more to deal with the challenges of the market, especially when the, the the tailwinds become headwinds.
0: You know, most family offices right now they look at things through a much narrower lens than you guys do because I think you guys have a much more holistic outlook on basically how, how how to do business. How important is networking with other family offices and just sharing best practices and deal flow? How important is that to what you guys have created? Because um, you know a lot of families want to network with other families. It's hard to do. What have you guys done? I'll let you take that. I mean, it's
2: a couple of different dimensions, right? So it's in terms of, you know, finding that right company, you want to be talking with other families. Families love to talk to other families. So um, we try to be out in the marketplace chatting with families. And today we probably have as many family dialogues going on as we've ever had, because I think families understand, you know, where we are is a little bit of a different period than we where we've been. And some families need a port in the storm and want to talk to somebody who might be able to be helpful to them. Some families want to go on the offense. So, in terms of partnering with families, we've got a lot of dialogues going on, and you need to have a lot of dialogues. But this is, as you know, Ron, this is a less than a one percent business. You got to look at more than hundred opportunities to find that one. In terms of cap, real quick, well, we really, always
1: try to be helpful. Yeah, to whether each one of them, right. to, You know, that's an important distinction. It's that we're like hey, why don't you go talk to Ron? He knows more about that. and He's more interested in that kind of thing. Or why don't you think about doing it this way, even if it doesn't fit for us? Because in the long run, what happens is they talk to their buddies and they go, you know what? Paul was really helpful. Paul helped me along with mine. Why don't you go talk to them? And they'll give you some ideas. So there's a lot of that. No, No question, right? It's our karma
2: strategy. Eventually you'll get paid back. Uh, down the road. Uh, on the capital front, so a lot of families talk to each other because they want to pool capital, share the risk, share the upside. And we've done that over time, too. We've had families bring us opportunities they couldn't they couldn't write the whole check. We would partner up with the family. And an example of that is an opportunity here in town where the, the Staines family had built up a very nice company along with another family here, the Driehaus family. Um, and they were looking for growth capital and some liquidity. We partnered up with them, brought in a, a a third continuing family. So three families here in town partnered to go grow a business. And we've doubled the EBITDA so far within that partnership. So families working with other families works, makes a lot of sense from a capital point of view.
0: How do you guys um, market yourselves? Market might not be the right word, but the the smaller, the entrepreneur who comes out of Stanford um, who's looking to partner, they want to find a VC, they figure if they go with Sequoia or NEA, they're all set. But they're one of 20 portfolio companies, and they're not a strategic partner with with Family Office. How do you guys, how do Family Offices get the word out? Like, we would like to partner with you so so that the entrepreneurs and the companies in Wichita know that you're a third option. And in many instances, I would argue a superior option. Yeah, it's a very opaque market. Unlike you know, the, you can go pick up a book
2: about PE firms, and you can see them all there, listed with their strategy. It's a it's a much more opaque market. What's exciting though is, just as families have figured out there's a great opportunity to deploy capital, uh, family businesses and want to sell or partner with with other families have figured out family capital is a great opportunity. So have the intermediaries and the lawyers and the consultants. So those people have de- developed dedicated groups, dedicated marketing efforts. And those people who connect buyer and seller capital and, and user of capital, um, that's much more sophisticated today than it was 10 or 20 years ago. So so in terms of that entrepreneur, that fundless sponsor, there are, there are ways to connect with families, lots of family network, family gatherings. But the intermediary market, the lawyers, the advisors, the bankers, much more sophisticated in terms of putting family capital uh, providers and
1: users together today than there has been at any time in the past. I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. I would add that the management team plays an influential role in where the company lands. Assuming that the management team is not a family member, might be a family owned business. And my favorite thing to be able to tell any of the management teams is talk to any of the companies Talk to the CEOs at any of the companies that we own. Talk to the CEOs at the companies that we used to own. Ask them how we behave. And that is very influential, I think, in getting the management team to understand, hey, and and if you talk to our guys, talk to the CEOs. Okay, you could say, oh, they're working for us. And so they have to say that. But I'm asking them all the time. Are we doing stuff that's helpful? I think that is also a little bit of the fact that we've got an operating overlay. And I think about it like if I was the CEO, what would it be like? But these guys are like, you guys are really additive. Are we bugging you too much? Asking too many questions? No. You know, if we are, tell us, because we realize you got to run the business. And you
0: don't think a private equity firm would do that?
2: I think uh, some of and, the and, some of the biggest believers in the family capital model are those management teams that have worked under a private equity firm or two, a traditional private equity fund or two. They understand the fundamental differences in approach in terms of how a build, how you build a business, how you incentivize people, how you create value, what perspective in terms of duration you have. The management teams actually are are some of our biggest fans, especially the ones that have dealt with it under a different model.
0: Because the- Private equity industry, in your guys' opinion, has it become a little bit too much of an AUM game, a bit of a conflict?
2: I think you have to start by the fact that the it's a massively successful business model, right? I mean, no one can look at the returns that private equities generate and the consistency they've generated returns for pensioners and and retirees and and all sorts of people in terms of the funds they support, the individuals they've created return for. Massively successful business model. But it builds companies in a certain way because of the constraints of the approach. And yeah, they've been able to build, they've been able to create return. I would say family capital allows you to build a better company, which then leads to a better return. Um, so so to, to answer your question, I, I think it's become a different game. It's massive amounts of capital, there's massive amounts of of, of number of firms, it's become a mature industry, and there's a lot of asset gathering going on that, that drives fee income as opposed to uh, return income. but it's been it's been very successful over many, many years. We just have a different model that has different
0: results, and it appeals to different sellers in different ways. It, it's proven out, and I think we're we're in a period now where a bit, a bit of an inflection point. What was interesting is, I gave a keynote at stanford a couple of years ago and i had five family offices and i said what's the family office and they had five completely different answers yeah. and nobody was wrong nobody was right that's just kind of where we are in the industry um you know i could talk to you guys literally truthfully for, <laughs> for hours um but I, I we do need to wrap up a little bit uh two final questions tony for you more on a personal front um you've accomplished from a business standpoint, so much, and from a philanthropic standpoint, what you've done, you've made such a enormous difference. Question I ask everybody, um, all my guests in the podcast is, what are you most grateful for? I,
1: that's it's a great question. I I know about most grateful, but I'll tell you one thing that I am. It might be the number one thing is that I was given a family with a great reputation. And guarding that reputation is critical. And my behavior every day is reflected by that. And I say to my kids, that you put your reputation in, in spoonfuls, and you pour it out in buckets. And so I didn't want to harm any of our reputation that we have as a family. And it's probably the number one thing that guiding, when I talk about honesty, loyalty, and integrity, or whatever, that all comes from our family values. And so I'm... You could say, yeah, I'm grateful for the capital that I got, but really I'm grateful for the reputation. And then the second thing is education. I'm grateful for the education I got at University of Chicago for business school, at Dartmouth for an undergrad education, and the fact that my parents were so focused on getting a great education.
0: So which leads me to uh, one other question, which is related to this. From your parent standpoint, and then you as a parent to your kids, one of the hardest things for any of us is probably, if not the hardest thing, is being a parent. It's, it's very challenging. They didn't give us a playbook. Um, how, in your world, how do you raise ambitious kids who are not entitled? Because that is not easy.
1: I, I don't know that I've got any you know, 30-second answer to that. But I will tell you that I, there are a couple of things, little tricks and things that that I've done. First of all, I think if you tell your kids to read a book, but they never see you reading a book, they're never going to read a book. So they're watching your behavior. You might not think they are, but they're watching your behavior every single day. And it's not like you're speaking in platitudes or anything like that, but what you do, how you treat the, 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 the airline check-in clerk, how you treat the barista, how you treat uh, anyone that you encounter, they're watching that every day. And they're watching whether or not you know, I sort of take the servant leader type of approach and you have to service them as well. And you got to be careful about that. Another thing that that I learned from a friend of mine, uh, Jamie Halper, I I like to collect quotes that I think are meaningful, whether it's a Winston Churchill quote or whether it's a simple quote, like experience is something you get just after you need it or some pithy type of remark, but that I think are important. Uh, And I would cut them out. I'd print it and cut it out and tape it to my kid's mirror and a different one every month. And... You still do that? Well, most of my kids aren't at home. I'd have to go over to their house to tape it to their
0: mirror. But you did that that through high school and college? Yeah. I just
1: think, you know, there's a lot of, you you know, and they'd roll their eyes and they'd say, oh, that's crazy. But they watch your behavior and they watch how you do things and whether you live up to those. You can write all the things and say all the things you want. But going back to your philanthropy question, they watch the fact that we go to the soup kitchens. They watch the fact that we participate in the, uh, uh, in the different philanthropies not just give money but do stuff with them.
0: and that was my last question um is from a philanthropy because my north star my father passed away when he was 57 from prostate cancer wow. and um my first boss was michael Milken. and if you know what michael Milken has done for the cure of prostate cancer yeah. rather than when he developed it rather than throw a couple hundred million dollars at the american cancer site he built it like a VC fund i mean Right. 200,000 here year, 500, whatever. And, and because of him, the, we will die with, but not of prostate cancer if we live long enough. And then you look at like what Bill Gates did for vaccines. I would argue he did more than the US government. So question for you, and this is my final question, is you can't run a philanthropy exactly like a business because they're not. Right. But how do you run a philanthropy more business-like in order to be more efficient?
1: Here's the most important thing that... We do. We think about in our businesses the number one diligence item that we think about in our businesses. How is the leadership? How good is the leadership? So we do stuff around philanthropy. It's most important that we think about the leadership at a 501c3. That's what's going to move the
0: chains. Well, this, this has been fascinating. Um, Paul, you are very fortunate to be working with Tony. And Tony, equally, you are extremely fortunate to be working with Paul because of of what your values are. And, you know, in this instance, one plus one equals three. So thank you very much for your time. Very much appreciate it. And look forward to continuing talking down the road. Great. Thank you, Ron. Appreciate Appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for tuning into Family Office World for today's show. Please make sure to subscribe on iTunes, your favorite podcast platform. I'll see you on the next episode. Family
3: offices have approximately 10 trillion in assets, with another 65 trillion being transferred from baby boomers to the next generation in the next 15 years.
0: This is the largest transfer of wealth in history.
3: Family offices will soon control more money than the entire private equity and venture capital industries combined.
0: The family office world is going to disrupt the way in which funds are raised. The world is changing so rapidly, so quickly. If you look at my generation versus my children's, there's been a bigger change, in my opinion, than any generation, including the Industrial Revolution. We are only in the second inning in the evolution of family offices.
3: Every high-end service provider is trying to break into the lucrative family office market, mostly with limited success. Let Ron Diamond, one of the industry's most sought after advisors, show you how he and his team have been able to navigate the family office landscape while developing meaningful relationships.
0: I was giving a lecture, a keynote at Stanford about two years ago, and I had five billion dollar families on the stage. And I asked each one of them, I said, what's a family office and why did you create it? And I had five completely different answers. And nobody was wrong or nobody was right. But that's kind of where this industry is. Only 25% of family offices make it to the second generation. 10 make it to the third and five make it to the fourth. So the model doesn't work. Here's what we need to do. We need to come together as a community and share best practices.
3: Representing over 100 family offices from 250 million to 30 billion, Diamond Wealth has curated a community of family offices to collaborate and share best practices. We are now ready to share that thought leadership with service providers everywhere. We are at a tipping point and there is no better guide into the world of family offices than Diamond Wealth.